Good afternoon, beloved. Good afternoon and Happy New Year. Hi, Donna. Amen. Amen. Listen, we are going to continue in our worshipfulness this evening, and that's by diving in and enjoying the richness of God's Word. This evening, we are reading from Matthew chapter 11, and I'm going to read for a minute, so I hope you have some stamina for this year. Amen? I'm reading from verses 1 through 19. If you're reading from the Pew Bible, that's on page 10, reading over into page 11, and if you're swiping, swipe on. As the new year came in, I realized I needed glasses, so, um, well, stronger medicine, so I need to read from the Bible a bigger print. Is that I'm getting old? Maybe so. Someone said yes. Ah. All right, let's begin. Matthew 11, verses 1 through 19. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to the 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Now when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the leprosy, those with leprosy, pardon me, are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. As these men were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who wear soft clothes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence. And the violent has been seizing it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Let anyone who has ears listen. To what should I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who calls out to other children. We play the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. This is 
the word of God. And let's pray as we open up God's word. Father, would you please come? Father, help me to stay out of the way so that your voice and your son can be seen. Bless us, O Lord, by the power of your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm quite sure that all of us have had the experience of doing kindness to others and speaking kindness to others and speaking the truth in love, humility, and grace and doing things for others that have been full of mercy and love only to have those people either misunderstand or mischaracterize or in some other way, either not or underappreciate what you have done. This is the experience that is growing for our Savior, Jesus, as we work our way through the Gospel of Matthew. As we come to chapter 11, we begin to pick up on some tensions and some uh, resistance that Jesus is facing in his ministry if you, if you want a quick summary of where we've been so far, in chapters 1 and 2, we have seen the birth of Jesus. In chapters 3 and 4, we've seen his baptism and his victorious temptation. In chapters 5 through 7, we have seen, we have heard the Sermon on the Mount, that wonderful summary of Jesus' ethical teaching as he introduces us to how we are to live in the kingdom. And you may remember that right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that the people went away amazed at the authority of Christ. They were thoroughly impressed. And then it goes on in chapters 8 and 9 where he kind of reinforces that impression on others through credentials and proofs. He bursts onto the scene with miracles. He has power over disease and storms and blindness and muteness and death. And the crowds are loving it. The crowds are eating it up. Then we get to chapter 10. And in chapter 10, we have our Savior delegating and deploying his 12 apostles to carry out the work of the gospel in other cities and towns. But you begin to pick up in chapter 10 these warnings from Jesus. As you do this, you need to expect persecution. You are going to get pushback. People are not going to like you. In fact, they're going to hate you just like they hate me. Along the way throughout the early chapters, we, we pick up little hints of confusion and even opposition from people. But early on, it's just hints. In chapter 8, for example, when he's delivered a man from powerful demons there's this strange response of the people in that man's community. They actually beg Jesus to leave. And the reason is, is because it's more scary, it's more scary to be in the presence of someone who has power over demons than it is to be in the presence of demons. And they didn't know what to do with this man 
Jesus. And what starts as confusion and discomfort starts morphing into suspicion and accusation. So that in chapter 9 and verse 34, the religious establishment actually comes up with the theory that he got his power to cast out demons by being a powerful demon. And then later on, they start calling him Beelzebub, which was another name for Satan. And so instead of seeing him as God with us, Emmanuel, chapter 1, they are now seeing him as Satan with us, Beelzebub, And we can tell that the tensions are rising. Things are beginning to turn against Jesus. People are not as enthused. They're not as excited. They're not as supportive. They're not as, as, he is not as popular. Stuff is happening that is beginning to be a concern. Now, as we come to this text in chapter 11, I'm very conscious of the fact that we do so in what you might call the radiant afterglow of last week's message. We were blessed, we were profoundly blessed by the ministry of our brother Brian Davis. God used his servant to speak to us of the preciousness of Christ. And because he is precious, our need to cultivate extravagant affection and adoration toward him. And I am grateful, I'm so grateful that as we return to Matthew, we actually return to a text of Scripture that allows us to continue what God started last week. We can see some things here in Matthew 11 that affect us, that stir up within us adoration and affection. So let's look at this text together. Here's here's what we're going to find, a simple outline for you. In our text, in Matthew 11, we're going to find that Jesus is one who offers his proof to doubters, his rebuke to mockers, and his friendship to sinners. So Jesus is one who offers his proof to doubters, his rebuke to mockers, and his friendship to sinners. Let's look at God's Word together, beginning with the first. Jesus offers his proof to doubters. Look at chapter 11 of Matthew and verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, that's John the Baptist, who we've read about back in chapter 3, the very same John the Baptist who said back there that the sandals of Jesus' feet he was unworthy to loosen, the very same John the Baptist who had said previously in John chapter 1, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the same John the Baptist who had been prophesying of, predicting the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Now we read here, when John, that John, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, to Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one 
who is not offended by me. I don't know if you're picking up the unexpected here. I don't know if you're seeing what is surprising here. But what we have is John the Baptist, the great man of God, the great prophet, the one who foretold and then announced the coming of Jesus, who is now having his doubts. This is a great man. There's something to notice here. Great men, great women, great human beings, great believers can doubt. Great men and women of God can doubt. John was great. How do I know that? Look at verse 11. Jesus says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John Jesus said, was greater than all the prophets that have gone before. He was the greatest of all the prophets. He is simply the greatest man previous to Jesus. John says, the greatest man who had been alive. And yet, this great man is doubting. Oh, I'm encouraged already. I'm encouraged already. Doubts my friends, are not necessarily bad. Intentional doubts and deliberate and willful unbelief, that's bad. But honest questions, honest uncertainties, honest doubts are okay. Notice how Jesus responds. He responds by offering proof to the doubter, John. By citing his deeds and his mission. He says, go and tell John what you see and hear. Go tell him. There's there's evidence here. Not calling John or anybody to blind faith. Not calling anyone to kind of just close their eyes and take a leap into the dark and hope you land somewhere on your feet. No, go tell John the lame are walking and the blind are seeing. And the the deaf are hearing, and the mute are speaking, and the, the poor are hearing the good news. Go tell him the things I'm doing, Jesus says. And there's irony here, because if you notice in verse 2, it says that when John heard of the deeds of Jesus, that's when he sent the messengers to Jesus expressing his doubt. So, what's going on here? John says, I'm seeing what Jesus is doing. It's confusing me. Is he really the Messiah? Jesus says, go back and tell John the things I'm doing. What's going on here? Why are the things that Jesus is doing confusing John with doubt? Why is he uncertain based on what he is seeing? He's uncertain, I think, for two reasons. One, because John's in prison right now. And that wasn't, what, that wasn't in his plans. As John was picturing his role as the forerunner to the Messiah, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, John was thinking, I'm going to have a little bit better ending than jail. 
He was thinking, my circumstances are going to work out pretty good. This is, this is going to work out pretty well for me, and not just for me. John was expecting, as most of the Jews of that day were, he was expecting a different kind of deed than those that Jesus was doing. He was expecting a political overthrow. He was expecting Jesus to come in riding a horse and taking down the enemies of the Jewish people. He was expecting Rome to get it on the chin when Jesus the Messiah arrived, but that's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to do a different kind of deed. John's expectation was one thing. When Jesus didn't fulfill John's expectation, John doubted Jesus. There, my friends, is a life lesson for all of us. You see, doubts happen in our lives when God doesn't do things we expect him to do. When God fails to meet up with our expectations, then we doubt his goodness, his love, and his power. This Friday marks the 30th anniversary of my headache. 30 years ago, on Friday, got meningitis, ended up with a headache. It's been with me ever since, every day, all day for 30 years. Let me, t- let me say something. If my expectation of God was back then or is today that God is so loving that he would never let me suffer and would never let let affliction happen in my life, if my expectation is God is going to keep my life easy and smooth, then the fact that I'm suffering would create doubt about God, wouldn't it? And that's the problem with doubters that I meet all the time. Honest doubters. They have an expectation. God is a God of love and kindness and goodness. And, and he has all power so he could, he could and he should make everything just right all the time. And that expectation of what God is like and what God is going to do is disappointed by the realities of this world where stuff happens all the time that hurts and makes us cry. And so the expectation is disappointed, and with that disappointment, doubts emerge. Does God really love me? Is God really there? Is God really all-powerful like everybody says He is? The expectations are the problem, not God. It is our view of God that's the problem. If we think God's love is such that He could never allow us to be spanked, that He could never allow us to suffer, that He would always give us the easy path. Folks, that's not the God of the Bible. And that's not the God of the real world. If we can change and alter our expectations, we can weaken our doubts. So if you're here today and you are among the doubters, I'm not here to rebuke you. I'm here to let you know, welcome to the crowd. Because I'm, I'm not a betting man, but if I were, 
I would wager that every person in this room, even those that have been believers for decades, experienced doubts and probably did this week. That's because we see dimly. It's because we're earthbound. It's because all we can see is right in front of us. We can't see beneath it and behind it and inside of it and above it. And we have these expectations. God's surely, if he loves me, he will do it this way. All of those limitations and those expectations create doubt. I love how Jesus responds. He offers proof to doubters. He says, go back and tell John. Tell John the lame are walking. The blind are seeing. The deaf are hearing. Go back and tell John, my mighty works. Can I suggest to you, if you're a doubter, if you don't know what you believe about Jesus, you don't know what you believe about God, here's something that I want to offer to you as a a bit of a friendly challenge. Um, Read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In this next year, read the Gospels Let me just throw out a number five times. Matthew through John, read them five times. And as you're reading them, even if you're not sure you believe in God, and even if you're not, you have your doubts, you have your questions, just just offer up a prayer, something like this. Uh, Dear God, if you're there, um, I'm going to read about Jesus. I'm going to read these four Gospels. Uh, Dear God, if you're there, would you give me an open heart so that I can see and sense whether he's real or not? And then just begin to read. Jesus said, proof of who I am are my deeds. So read the Gospels. Read about the deeds, the works of Jesus. Read the words of Jesus. And God's ways are mysterious and He works in everybody differently. But I believe that if some of you will do that this year with, a, with an honest, open heart to, to, to look at the words and the works of Jesus... You'll come through that experience on the other side, knowing with certainty who Jesus is. Because Jesus, in his words and in his works, Jesus is like the sun, that is the S-U-N up up there. Um, You really don't have to prove the existence of the sun, do you? Somebody says, prove to me the sun exists. What do you do? Do you break out your science book and... And I'll show the pictures of the sun. Or what do you do? You just look up. Look up. All you got to do to prove the existence of the sun is to see the sun. I'm convinced all you need to do to see the person and work and beauty and wonder of Jesus is to look at him. 
And there's no better place to look at him than in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just offer that prayer to God with even the tiniest seed of faith. God, if you're there, show me you're real in the words and in the works of Jesus. And watch what God does in your life. Jesus offers proof to doubters. Secondly, Jesus offers rebuke to mockers. There's a difference between doubters and mockers. There's a difference between those who have honest questions and those that have determined that no matter what, they are not going to believe and in fact they're going to mock. Look at verses 7 through 11 where Jesus begins to poke at the motives and the intentions of the crowd. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? The wilderness is where John the Baptist preached. And he said, why, why did you people go out there in the wilderness? What were you looking for? Was it a, a reed shaken by the wind? Were you just looking for this, this uh, reed just to be kind of bouncing back? What, what were you looking for? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among these born of women there has arisen no one greater than John. John asserts John's role as a, or Jesus asserts John's role as a great prophet from God. And here in these verses just read, Jesus begins to question the motives and the intentions of his audience. What are you really looking for? And then down in verse 16, he makes explicit and clear what was implicit in the earlier verses. To what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man, that's Jesus, came eating and drinking and they say look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus, Jesus accuses the people of being like children who don't know what they want and are even oppositional just for the sake of being ornery. So what do you want to do? I don't know. Let's dance. Nah. Let's mourn. Nah. Let's get all ascetic and monk-like like John. Nah. That's weird. Let's get all celebratory about food and drink and friendship like Jesus, nah, that's too worldly. You see what he's saying? You see his indictment of those who are willfully and deliberately unbelieving? He is saying, you don't know what you want You just know that you want what 
whatever you want, whenever you want it, and you're not after the truth. You're not after God. So John, he was the mourner type, wearing camel's hair clothing, eating locusts and wild honey. Jesus was the dancing, feasting type, coming in normal clothes, sitting around people's tables, eating food and drinking wine and celebrating friendship. John never touched drink. He ate lots of locusts and wild honey. Jesus loved to eat and drink with sinners, but the people didn't want either one. Jesus addresses the hypocrisy that will not make up its mind when it comes to faith. The hypocrisy that scoffs at everything in a way that proves that the problem is not in the faith, the problem is with the scoffer. You follow his logic, many people scoffed John for being too holy and then scoffed Jesus for not being holy enough. We see this in our world today. The world denounces Christians for being weird and too good, holier than thou, and then the world despises Christians when they slip up even in the slightest way. Never notice that. Something's fishy at the motive level here, folks. Jesus is saying that the hypocrites are not John or Jesus or his followers. The hypocrites are the people who are poking fun at the followers of Christ, who are poking fun at the truth. This kind of unbelief is hypocritical and phony. Jesus says, don't kid yourself to the crowd. You're making it sound like you've got good reasons to reject me, but really you just want to reject me. If you've got honest doubts, look at my works, look at my deeds. But if you've already gotten your mind made up that no matter what the answers, you're going to find fault and you're not going to believe, then at least have the integrity and the honesty to admit that you don't want to believe. And then Jesus turns the heat, the intensity up to issue a warning that should make us tremble. For he says in verse 20 in a text that will be preached at length next week, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon. Those were Old Testament cities that have been destroyed. It will be more bearable for them than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, another town in ancient days that had been destroyed. If these mighty works, Jesus said, had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. What sobering words. This is, this is how Jesus confronts willful, deliberate unbelief. Honest doubts, he gives proof. 
mocking unbelief, he says, judgment is coming. The day is going to come when you will stand before God and give an account for every work of Christ, every word of Christ you ever heard that should have convinced you. And you will give an account to that. And you will bear the punishment for that. Jesus offers his proof to doubters, but his rebuke to scoffers. And now third, he offers his friendship to sinners. His friendship to sinners. Notice two sections of our text. First of all, verses 4 through 6, Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news preached to them. Notice the kinds of people that Jesus focuses on. He focuses on the blind and the lame and the leprous and the deaf and the dead and the poor. Now we need to understand here, there's nothing particularly um, worthy or deserving in the poor. It's not as if, hey, I'm poor. I deserve God's attention more than others do. No, there's nothing inherently righteous about the poor. It's a certain kind of poverty and blindness and lameness and disease person that Jesus is looking for. Look down at verse 19 where he is described as a friend of tax gatherers and, what's the word? Sinners. It is the sinful poor, the sinful blind, the sinful lame, the sinful diseased person. That is, the person who knows he's a sinner. Remember chapter 9? I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came looking for sinners. Jesus came looking for people. Everybody's a sinner, but the problem with most people is that they don't admit it. They don't acknowledge it. It doesn't break their heart. It doesn't grieve them. They don't repent of it. They don't come, like we heard earlier, with a broken and a contrite heart to God. They don't come begging for mercy. They're cocky in their sinfulness, and they're arrogant in their sinfulness. And Jesus is saying, I've come to call sinners who know they are sinners to repentance. I am the friend of sinners. Those who know they're sinners. Those who feel they're sinners. Those who mourn that they're sinners. Those that are ashamed that they are sinners. Those who repent that they are sinners. Those are the ones Jesus came to befriend. You see, you can be a poor sinner or a rich sinner. You can be a male sinner or a female sinner. You can be a white sinner or a black sinner or a brown sinner or a blue sinner. You can be an educated sinner. You can be an uneducated sinner. The term sinner is generic. It just applies to all of us. We're all in the same condition before God. The question is, will we admit it? Will we acknowledge it? Will we humble ourselves? And this is where it just gets so wonderful here in this text. Jesus is called the friend of sinners. The friend of sinners. He ate and drank 
with sinners, not because Jesus was a party animal. Sometimes people read this and they get all crazy on us. Jesus loved parties. Ah. I'm not sure that's the point. He never got drunk. He wasn't actually a glutton. But here's the reality. He spent so much time with people that were drunks and were gluttons and were prostitutes and were sinners that people began to think that he was one of them. His love was so personal. His love was so tender. His love and affection for sinners was so real that he ate with them and drank with them. He reclined, it says over in chapter 9, he reclined at table with sinners. Picture this, my friends. Jesus is in sinners' homes. People who know they're sinners. People who are broken-hearted sinners. He is in their homes. He's reclining at the table. In, back in the culture back then, they didn't have high tables. They had low tables. And people would sit and they put their legs under the table. And when things got really cozy and really comfortable, they would recline. They would just kind of lean back. Any of you who have sat in my presence for any length of time will realize that the longer I sit, the more slouched I become. It, it just, it just happens. There's a level of comfortability. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Get this image in your heart and mind, dear ones. Jesus loves sinners so much that he'll break bread with them. He'll feast with them. He'll... You'll be reclining at the table and another sinner knocks on the door. He said, come on in. Come on in. Welcome. Welcome. Jesus ate and drank with sinners. Jesus, it says that Jesus was, remember in John chapter 15 that he, he said to his disciples, you are now my friends because I have told you everything that the Father has said to me. This is what friends do, right? Friends share. Friends talk. Friends open up the secrets of their hearts. Open, you know, and Jesus says, I've, I've told you everything that's going to happen. I've revealed the Father's heart. This is what's going to take This is what's going to happen. You're part of it. Jesus is a friend of sinners and that he eats and drinks with them and he shares his heart with them. Jesus is a friend of sinners in that he died for them. Romans 5 and verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Timothy 1 the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. John 10, this is my commandment, Jesus said. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Finish this with me. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends and you. Jesus says, are my friends. This is the sin-atoning, wrath-appeasing, hell-removing, debt-canceling love of Jesus for sinners. 
And that same love that he had for sinners while he was on earth is the love that continues today for sinners. There's a text in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that describes the believers, the church in Corinth. And I want you to listen, just listen to this. Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Listen now. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, the terms there, all forms of homosexuality, including pedophiles nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, he says, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such, he says, were some of you, but, but, but you are now justified and sanctified through the Lord Jesus Christ. You have been justified in the name of Christ. Do you hear what Paul is saying? He is saying Jesus is still a friend of sinners and all kinds of sinners. Name it. Jesus loves sinners. You cannot get too sinful for the love of Jesus. It is impossible. If you will but humble yourself before him and say, Jesus, be my friend. Jesus, rescue me. Jesus, save me. I'm running to you, Jesus, because there's no other friend who can do for me what you can do for me. If you will trust in Him as your Savior, as your friend, you will be forgiven. He will welcome you in. He will say, you're mine and you're going to be with me forever and ever and ever. Come, come to me. We're going to hear next week, all you that labor and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come to me. There's an old hymn. It's been put to new music in recent time, but it goes like this. Come, ye sinners poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome God's free bounty, glorify true belief and true repentance, every grace that draws you nigh. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry until you're better, you will never come at all. If you wait until you're less sinful, until you're better, you will never come. But if you look in the mirror and if you look into your heart and you say, I'm the sinner, I'm the poor, I'm the needy, I'm the sick, the wounded, the weak, the sore. Then Jesus is ready and he stands to save you full of pity, love, and power. And he will do it right now, right here in the seat where you sit, if you will but believe in him.
right now, right where you are, in the seat, turn to Jesus and you will have a friend that will never fail you and you will have a Savior who will forever save you. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Do we have reason to adore? I'd say so. If you're a believer, we're going to leave some time for singing here. We need to sing. Uh, um, but if you're a believer, I do, want, I do want to leave you with this. Um, practice toward others what Jesus has shown to you. Very simple. Practice toward others what Jesus has shown to you. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Be a friend of sinners. Never look at anybody as too sinful, too dirty, too dangerous for you to be their friend. There may be certain times and places where you go where you might want to take some other believers with you for protection and safety. However, never see anyone as too dirty or sinful for Jesus or for you. Learn the habit of eating with unbelievers. Open your home to unbelievers. Share your bread, your table with unbelievers. Find ways to find sinners like you so that you can introduce them to the best friend that has ever lived, our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Teach us, O oh Lord, first to believe, to believe in Jesus as the friend of sinners, and then to introduce other sinners to this most wonderful friend of all, our Savior Jesus. Bless us, Lord with adoring affection for Christ, knowing that he has such undeserved affection for us. In his name we pray, amen. Let's stand and respond in worship. Thank mm -hmm. you.